following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine and More. Everybody loves honey glazed carrots. A great side dish for your springtime celebration and a delicious compliment to a sweet, bright Moscato. Your Bloody Mary bar will be the talk of brunch with the vodka I'm stalking. Pile those toppings sky high. Serving lamb this season? Try it with a bold Cabernet from the trendy Paso Robles region. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine and More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! Welcome to the Forbes Sports Money Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Ozanian. On this show, we talk about the business of sports. My guest today is Tom Laidlaw, founder of Post Game Strategies. Tom is a deal maker these days, but a guy I used to watch skate around Madison Square Garden when he played for the New York Rangers in the 80s, and then after that, the Los Angeles Kings. Tommy, how you doing, buddy? Very good, bud. Great to be on with the great Mike Ozanian. <laughs> Like you're probably like the most you're probably the most hated and liked man in in uh, North America, right? When you maybe the world when you come up with your sports valuations, right? Yeah, if I if the numbers are good and favorable to the team and it's what they want, they love me. When they're not, they hate me. You know, you know how it goes, Tommy. You know, as long as I could please half the people half the time, yeah. then you know, there you go, there you, you go. Gotta, you got to take the love with the hate, right? There you go. You're ahead of the game if you can do that. That's good. How are things going for you? You know, I've been what you know on Facebook. We're friends. Yeah, you must be going to the gym a lot. I'm looking at you. You know, you, you're getting ready for a little UFC, mixed martial arts. What you're looking really buff these days. You know, I I think it started. Thank you very much. You know, you've got a good eye for talent. Thank you. Um, <laughs> my uh, my sons now are 24, 26, and probably like back when they were teenagers. Um, you know, I after I finished playing, I, I was still working out a little bit, but. Uh, uh, they wanted to get back in the gym or they want to start getting in the gym. So I went back in the gym and I, of course I couldn't let my boys, you know, outlift me and all that kinds of stuff. So I got back into it and, uh, I really, uh, I, it's really taken off for me, the diet and the working out. And I get up at, uh, it's funny, I'm on Instagram and I, every morning I get up at three 30 and I pour my coffee. So it's kind of a tradition now that every morning I have to tape it when I'm pouring my coffee, I put a little music to it and the whole bit. So everybody expects me up at three 30 all the time. So, uh, up at three 30 in the gym at four 30 and, uh, I love it. It's just become part of the lifestyle, so it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I bet when you were playing for the Rangers, three thirty sometimes is when you were just getting into yeah. bed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. Uh, uh, Rod Duguay was playing, and he was a great teammate. But he had the reputation; he was always in paid six, you know, and always out with the pretty girls and all that stuff. And you know, when you're a young player, it still happens now, but even more back then, the old guys would kind of pass on the old sage advice, you know, that they had. Like, you know, Carol Vadney was good and showing me which kind of sticks I should use, and other guys were showing me different things. And Ron Duguay, one time, we're sitting on the bus, and uh, I was behind him. It was after a game. He leans back to me, and I think, oh, geez, you know, Dukes is going to give me some good advice. He says, Tommy, sleep's overrated. You only need two hours of sleep every night. You know, that was his piece of <laughs> advice to me, so... But, uh, yeah, yeah, I heard some great stories about those 80s, uh, early 80s teams. I think, was Espo still on the team yep. back then? Yep. Phil yep. and uh, Yeah, the first year was Phil's last year, the year he retired, yeah. Wow, wow. That was, that was, uh, that was you know, some really good teams back then. The only problem was uh, that was sort of when the Islanders dynasty had just started. And uh, I, I always tell people, I said, you know, the, the Islanders – 
I think we're the greatest dynasty of all time. I think they won 16 consecutive playoff series or something like that, or 19 actually, because they went to the finals the year they didn't win the cup that fifth year. Exactly. I don't know if you ever see that again. I mean, that that was. uh, Well, and and the way they played too, like you look at Pittsburgh now has won two in a row. So everybody in the league looked at them as kind of the standard, right? They all want to be like them. But they, I mean, listen, they can alter the game a little bit, but generally their game is speed, right? It's speed playing on defense, it's speed playing offense. uh, you know, that it's a real speed game. The thing with the Islanders was you could play any kind of game you wanted. Like way back when they won the first cup, you probably remember they played the Boston Bruins and had a big brawls with them. So they fought it out with Gillies and Nystrom and all the tough guys they had. You know, and then it was a speed game. You know, they had Mike Bossy and Brian Trotche and Bob Bourne. All those guys could fly up and down the ice too. John Tonelli could grind it out with the best of them. So they could play any kind of game you wanted to play. You know, I remember though with the Rangers back then, they're, they're uh, as tough as that rivalry was. There seemed to be mutual respect. Like I don't remember, you know, in the playoffs and stuff. I I don't remember it being uh, really dirty or chippy. You know, like sometimes it would get with some of the other teams, or the Islanders and Flyers would be, or the Islanders and Bruins. It, it seemed like it was mostly hockey with the Rangers, uh, uh, and uh, you know, it was really, really. I think that made for some really exciting hockey. Yeah, well, remember, Herb Brooks came in. So my first year was 80-81. So Herb came in in the 81-82 season. And, uh, and again, you're right, that was right in the middle of their, their Islanders' run for all their cups. Uh, and especially, you know, Herb, you know, listen, he wanted to stand up for himself, but he wanted that speed game. And we were two evenly matched teams. We had that series, I think, in 84, 85, when Ken Morrow scored in game five in overtime to, to win the series. And that was a great series. And you're right. It, I mean, this is hard fought and everything, but it wasn't dirty hockey. But somebody had, showed me an old YouTube video of game five again. And it was pretty exciting to watch it, you know, even being a player and I hadn't seen it in a long time. And uh, it was just really good hockey, but it was hard and hard hitting. But you're right. They, they really, I think partly because the games were so close most of the time. The teams couldn't afford to take any bad penalties, so the game was, games were pretty good. I still remember that uh, last goal, the winning goal by the Islanders that Morrow scored. There was yeah. a guy. There was sort of a collision to one side of the net behind the net, yeah. Ranger net, and the puck was there. And the guy that the Rangers had, I forget his name, and instead of going up the short end, he wound it around the other end. Yeah. And the puck came out, and... Uh, uh, went tomorrow, and one of the Rangers defensemen, uh, Willie Uber, yep. I think, skated out towards him and totally screened the goalie. So he yeah, said he, 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 yeah. he never saw it; it just went yeah. right in. It was so. It was Glenn, Glenny Hanlon in that too, and Glenny was one of the all-time great teammates, and uh, you know, really was never a, a true number one goalie. But uh, that Bather, and I can't remember if somebody else had gotten hurt. It might have been Van Beesbark or something, and Glenny was a goaltender. But yeah, you you described it perfectly. That's exactly how it happened. Yeah. And we were like, go the other way. We're all watching TV. Go the other way. No. Oh. And, and, and it's so sudden and sudden death, too. It was, and, you, know, and, you know, we should have won the game before. We were up, what, two games to one in the series. And game four was at the Garden, uh, I guess, maybe two nights before that game five. And we should have won that game. That's where we would have won the series. That's where we really lost it. And then we still, I mean, obviously going to overtime in, in game five was still great, but we uh, should have won that series. That, that was a lot of fun. I mean, this, you always want to win, but you look back at that, and, and I was fortunate I got traded to Los Angeles a few years after that, and I played with John Tonelli, who was on the Islander team, and Bob Bourne, and uh, you know, had so much respect for those guys because of what they'd done, and I got to be good friends with you know, both those guys. But uh, uh, Tonelli and I keep in touch now. He's up here uh, in the Westchester area working on title insurance business. 
business. And we actually coached a team together this this past season of young 14 year old boys. And I really had a ton of respect for him. It's funny because he was such a competitive guy and worked so hard playing. And uh, he was coaching, and I see his son was on the team, and he, he coached exactly the same way. He was, <laughs> but he was tough on those kids. But you know, this was a high level team. Uh, these kids, you know, came from all around to play on this team because they wanted to play for John Tonelli, and he, there was a reason for it. He he pushed them to be better players, and it worked. Tommy, when you when you first got out of hockey, you were a player agent for a while, no? Yeah, I was. I was an agent for uh, twenty two years. I uh, I'd started my own business, laid law sports management, and. Uh, Ultimately, went to work for IMG. IMG was the biggest in the world at that time. Um, I had actually, I was fortunate because uh, I played when I was in LA. Wayne Gretzky was there, and his agent Mike Barnett uh, it was really just on his own at that time. And he went to work for IMG, and obviously brought Wayne and all the other players he had at that time. And we knew each other uh, from the LA days. And I had, things had gone very well for me with late loss sports management on my own for like three or four years. And he, we'd see each other out in the road all the time. And uh, they asked me to come and join IMG, and it was a great experience. I'd never really dealt with the corporate world at all, and that was the corporate world. And uh, but it was a great experience, you know, it just uh, to see how they operated uh, the machine that they'd put together there to to represent athletes and events. Uh, it was a lot of fun. How did you How did you get into being a sports agent? Yeah, I was. Uh, I had a, a very good friend, a guy who'd been around a long time, one of the first agents ever who passed away oh, a few years ago, Larry Roush. And uh, Larry had represented going way back to I think like guys like Brad Park and everything, and uh, so I knew him from the New York area, and he had asked me to be a recruiter for him. Uh, I actually was in out out in L.A. at the time where I'd retired, and flew back to New York and spent the weekend. We sat around and talked about you know how we wanted to do the business, and I was all set to work for Larry, and then. Uh, I got in the plane, you know, the long flight back to Los Angeles, and I started thinking, and he was a great guy. He had a ton of respect for him, and he'd done very well. Uh, Everybody in the sports industry really respected him. But I just started thinking, you know, why am I going to work for somebody else? Um, You know, the the advantage I had, I just finished the game. This was like weeks after retiring, and uh, I knew everybody. All the guys I'd played with or played against were now getting into scouting and coaching and general managers and and that really, so I made the decision to uh, to just do it on my own. And uh, it's funny, I, you know, it's kind of a bad story, but uh, kind of a funny story. Uh, you know, you know, you got to go out and recruit clients, right? So I was going out talking to guys who were maybe ninth round draft picks, you know, thinking I'll you know, get those guys and work my way up to the first round draft picks. And and uh, I was up in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. No, actually, I was in uh, Seattle, and Moose Jaw was playing there, and they had a young boy who'd been. Uh, drafted uh, I think like in the ninth round by the Vancouver Canucks and my old teammate Glennie Hanlon that we talked about the goaltender was the goaltending kind of consultant for Vancouver at the time and he was up watching this young goaltender play the game and pulled him aside after the game and introduced me to him and said "Uh, this is your new your new agent so that's how I got my first client and uh, that was really the advantage I had over a lot of other agents in the business was that I just I just got done playing I knew everybody in the game so I was able to get uh get a lot of players right away that's a great story but i mean you had to go to law school at some point no no there's it's you know people make that assumption that uh, there's law involved that like particularly in the national hockey thing and i think with most sports the uh the standard player agent contract that you use is you cannot change the language in that contract at all wow uh, you can so you can negotiate you know at, at that time when i first started there was bonuses so you would have addendums to the contract but you know, with the players' association and with the teams, they generally were they were going to oversee all that stuff too. Like the players' association was there. Bob Goodnow was just getting started, uh, and he'd really started to organize things. 
for the Players Association, so they were a resource. Uh, there really wasn't much law involved, and and I really looked at it that the difference I had from most there's some other agents that had been players, but for most of the guys, the difference I had was the fact that I had played. So I was coming at it that listen, I I believe that I could negotiate as good a contract as anybody else. I could cover all the bonuses that need to be there and again it's all all that information is available to the agents of what all the other uh, uh, players are getting for bonuses the difference i thought i had was that i had played and i could really help the players relate to you know how to deal with you know getting cut or getting sent down or how to deal with coaches and the media uh and i think that's what really separated me from other agents and allowed me to be pretty successful at that when you started out as an agent was that kind of like right when or right before all the sort of uh the big battle started taking place between the NHL Players Association and, and the league. And, and, you know, I think there was uh, – obviously there was the one uh, lockout, I guess. It was that 03, 04, 04, 05 yeah. that the season was missed. And then there was something in the 90s as well uh, where uh, I think the season started late or there was a yeah. lockout. And, you know, it just seems to me that during that period, like from – uh, maybe the early to mid '90s uh, until maybe about seven, eight years ago, it was just uh, big battles between yep. the league and the players. And then within that, there was always this like—I uh, shouldn't say always, but there there was a, particularly at one point you mentioned good now between him and other people who were uh, representing the NHL Players Association and. You, you know, guys had daggers out for each other's backs. And even within the players union, there's been these battles. I mean, that that could not have made your job easier. Well, you know, and and we kind of grew up in that world that that's just the way it was. But you described it very well. You you go back to Alan Eagleson uh, the whole time I played uh, up until I think so 1991, I think is when Goodenow took over. That's right when I was retiring. So Alan Eagleson, he ruled the roost. Uh, He was – you know, he was in. He ultimately went to jail, and you know, Bobby Orr. There's famous stories about you know he represented Bobby Orr, and he was the head of the Players Association. When Bobby Orr got done, he was penniless because of what Eagleson had done to him. So, you know, he he was a bad guy for the players. In fact, it wasn't until like in 1986, 87, in that range that we even had salary disclosure. So it was that up until that time, nobody around the league knew what the other guy was making. Maybe some guys that were tight friends whispered to the, their buddy, "This is what I'm making." But you know, Wayne Gretzky, for example, that time was the greatest player in the world, and he didn't know what anybody else was making. And it was funny because we had long debates, and it's funny looking back at it because how you know how naive we were. And good now, or excuse me, uh, Eagleson at the time would tell us, "Guys, you know, you got to be careful. You shouldn't have this salary disclosure. It's going to ruin the game." And and we were like, "Really?" Like, and, and we were those naive, you know, farm boys and just wanted to play hockey kind of mentality. And and finally, we came to the conclusion that no, we needed to have salary disclosure. And, and listen, Bob Goodnow did a ton of great things for the Players Association, but I think one of the biggest things that drove the salaries up was when we finally had salary disclosure. Then, you know, I, I think I have this correct. It was like Wayne Gretzky again was the top player in the game, and Dave Taylor was a, a fantastic player playing for the Los Angeles Kings. But he had negotiated a contract where I think he was making a million dollars a year, which was huge at that time. And Gretzky wasn't making any. I, maybe he was like seven fifty or whatever. 
750000 And he, uh, once he found out, obviously, that Taylor was making a million, then he went in and you know got a new contract making $2 million or whatever it was. And then everybody else's contracts started going up and up and up. And, it, it, you know, it's just interesting looking back at, at all those times where we didn't, all those players that didn't know what the other guys were making and how that could have helped, like the Gordy Howes or the Bobby Hulls and what they were making and how we were held back. But, you know, all those, you know, you know, Goodnow then came in and he really ran a tight ship. Uh, I wasn't always a big fan of Bob Goodnow's the way he did things, especially near the end of his tenure. But I tell you, he did so many good things for the players, and he fought hard for them. And that's why we had, you know, the lockouts. And the big one was the 0405 where we missed the whole season, um, you know, in an attempt to stay away from the salary cap, which ultimately the players accepted. And Bob had to step down for that to happen. But, uh, you know, and it's all – listen, there, there's still issues like the escrow that the players don't like that they have to have held back from their, their contracts. Uh, but, you know, salaries have gone up recently that Connor McDavid and, and Edmonton just signed an eight year, hundred million dollar contract, which I thought you know, that I, I never would have envisioned that kind of thing happen. And then it's, you know, it's all happened. And, you know, part of this, the league's done a great job. The revenues have gone up to, you know, that four billion dollar range and the players have a split on that. And, and consequently, they make more money. And breaking away to say this show is brought to you by the business platinum card from American Express. However, you move your business forward. With Business Platinum, it's not about where you are, it's about where you want to take your business next. And nothing helps you like the resources and know-how of the Business Platinum card, backed by the service and security of American Express. And two friends from New York found themselves at JFK with dead cell phones, delayed flights, and a bright idea, luggage with power. Thus, Away Carry-On Luggage was born. You can choose from eight colors and four sizes. The two carry-on sizes are able to charge anything powered by a USB cord. How long does that charge last for your, let's say, iPhone? Five times with a single charge of the Away carry-on. And now, for $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com Forbes and use promo code Forbes during the checkout. Aggravated by sticky wheels? With Away, you get four 360-degree spinner wheels guaranteeing a smooth ride. There's a removable laundry bag that keeps dirty clothes separate from clean. Free shipping on any Away order within the lower 48 states. For $20 right now off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com Forbes and use promo code Forbes during the checkout. Tommy, what's your uh, take on the current uh, collective bargaining agreement in the NHL in terms of is it fair for the players, and, and what does it mean for the league in terms of stability and, and overall profitability for the league? Well, I, I think all those things. I think it is fair for the uh, for the players. Uh, listen, play, as, especially as a former agent, former player, you always want the players to make more. But for them to make more, the game has to has to be able to survive. So you have to be on markets like you know Phoenix and Carolina and Florida and all those places that can survive. Or else it's just going to drag the rest of the league down. And you look at, you know, Gary Bettman um, and Bill Daly and their tenure. And I think when they first started, the revenues were like in that $700 million range. And, and again, now they're up to that $4 billion number. And again, that's below all the other major sports. But still, it's a pretty big gain for a sport like hockey that, you know, isn't 
as sellable on TV as those other sports. So I think the CBA has uh, leveled the playing field so that every team, well, pretty much every team every year, you know, they have a shot of making the playoffs. So there's those stragglers that, you know, just, you know, just aren't going to be good. You know, now Vegas is going to come in as an expansion team. You don't assume that they're going to make the playoffs right away. But even in that case, they've, they've tried to make sure that that team is competitive right away. Um, so I, I think it's, I think it's fantastic. I, you know, listen, it was hard to get to the point that the CBA that we ultimately got, again, we missed the, the entire 0405 season we missed another half season after that to, to now correct some of the uh guess so-called mistakes that were made on the, on the original cba and in, in 0405 but now it seems like things have stabilized you know they had a, a longer deal now you know there's going to be another cba negotiations coming up here what's going to happen there i don't i don't foresee another lockout i, I think it would be foolish there's, there's got to if there's tweaks that need to be made they're there. The players are happy. Like all those issues, the contractual issues like arbitration are still there for the players. And that's a big leverage point for them. So I, I think it's working fine for everybody. Yeah, I think what is it about uh, 47, 48 percent of league wide revenue that the players now get? It's a 50 50 split. Uh, yeah, they, they take some. Uh, yeah, they take some initially after the 0405 lockout. The players were getting fifty-seven percent. There was a little mm-hmm. bit of a sliding scale there, but then that was the big thing that had the the league obviously wanted to fix in the the next lockout, um, and they did. They got that to fifty-fifty, and that was right after the NBA had negotiated their new CBA, which also took it down to fifty-fifty. Um, so, you know, again, fair for both sides. Right, and part of one of the um, uh, complaints by some people with the CBA. Maybe it was the CBA before the car- this current one. When did this current one start? Was it two years ago? Uh, no, a little longer than that. Little, okay. Or, yeah, but three or four, yeah. So maybe this CBA, the way the uh, uh, some of the uh, structures in the collective bargaining agreement in terms of when you can make, uh, you know, when you're an unlimited free agent and, you know, so when you can get maximum amount of uh, money uh, out there in the free market was skewed a little bit too much towards the veterans. So, yep. you know, it pushed out too much. Uh, how does it actually work out? And what do you think about the way it works out? Well, you, you know, it's a valid point, but you look at what's happened now. So what happens is there's entry-level contracts. So obviously the players that are coming in, like the Connor McDavid's of the world, if they come in at 18 years old, they have to sign a three-year entry-level contract. And that is limited to how much they can make. Uh, I think that, and I, I have to look it up. I think the max is in that nine hundred thousand, maybe a million dollar a year range. There's some bonuses there for them, but again, that they're limited, very limited. The rookies are. Uh, then once you go through your entry level contract, again, depending how old you are, how many years in the league, generally you'll have another two years there before you, where you're a restricted free agent, before you get to be an unrestricted free agent. So if you're a restricted free agent, it means other teams can make a qualifying offer to you or offer you a contract. The team that owns your rights has the right to match that. Uh, but then once you get through that period of time, you are an unrestricted free agent. But mm. to your point about you know those skewed towards the veteran contracts, again, you look at Connor McDavid's contract, and that's going to have a ripple effect excuse me, ripple effect to these other young star players like Jack Eichel and, and uh, Buffalo and um, Austin Matthews in Toronto, all good young players. So he signed uh, – once his – third year expires on that initial contract which will be the end of next season he has a new contract already negotiated an eight-year contract for a hundred million dollars so you know again that he'll only be what 22 years old 21 22 years old when that contract kicks in so it you know it's worked out that you know it listen if you're a good enough hockey player you're that 
you know, that uh, generational player that they call your franchise player, like McDavid is in Edmonton, then you're going to get your money. And, and the, the max they could sign him for was eight years. Uh, if you're a, if you're a, excuse me, an unrestricted free agent and you now go to another team, the max that that new team can sign you for is seven years. But if you stay with your team that owns your rights, you can sign for eight years. Very interesting. Yeah. So th- that kind of seems reasonable. I mean, you know, when you're, when you're, uh, parsing out half of the league's revenue to the players, um, there's going to be half. There's going to you're going to have to have some scale in terms of salary. Some just yep. so you know you don't pay some of the younger guys a fortune and these other guys really that have been uh, towing the line and making the headway for these you know improving the league yep. and making the headway for these guys that they're not forgotten. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what the PA was looking for. That Listen, we can't we can't just give these young kids this money until they come in and prove that they can really do it. And, you know, it's worked out well. Now, again, the one issue, right, the, the touchy issue is the escrow that we touched on earlier. So, again, you know, as part of the salary cap world, <clears throat> the league is built in this escrow system. So they'll sit at the start of the year and they'll kind of determine, OK, it's a seventy five million dollar cap. We split up all the money. Look at all the contracts. Okay, is this going to work out to be a 50-50 split? So they'll sit with the PA, and they'll determine that you know maybe these contracts that you factor in all the bonuses and all the young players coming in may go beyond the 50-50 split. So we're going to have to hold back uh, 10% or 15% of each player's contract throughout the year. And then they'll monitor that as the season goes along, and they'll figure, okay, should, should now that slide back to 5%? Should it go up a little bit? And again, all depending on these young players, who gets called up to play, you know, so they'll constantly be monitoring where that, that salary is. Um, and then at the end of the year, if it has worked out to be the 50-50 split, the way it's supposed to be, uh, they'll refund that escrow money back to the players or a portion of it, or in some cases even more, uh, depending how the ultimate revenues turned out compared to what the salaries paid out were. And and the players coming up, uh, they impact the escrow and the cap because once you get called up, you start to make at least the minimum, correct? Yeah, and you, so you're making NHL dollars. That's adding to the cap. So you may, if a team's got a lot of injuries, they've still got to keep guys around and pay them, obviously. And now you got to bring up young players. So now that amount of money that's going towards the salary, the, excuse me, the players' portion of it now continues to rise. And that, and again, we, there's issues on the owner side with the revenues, uh, like the Canadian dollar. <clears throat> excuse me, if the Canadian dollar drops, obviously the revenues drop, and that then you know the players have to take a bigger bite in the escrow. All right, Mr. Dealmaker. So let's let's look at some of the deals out there. Let me let me put you on the spot here, my buddy. Yes. So you know, you mentioned the new expansion team in Las Vegas that's starting this year. By the way, I heard uh, Jerry Bruckheimer, the great uh, TV and film producer, uh, he actually was trying to get that expansion team in Vegas for a while, which which I found very interesting. I didn't realize uh, he yeah. was a hockey fan, but apparently yeah. he is. Yeah, big hockey fan. He's out in L.A. there, and uh, when I played out in the Kings, he was there. It's not like he was he was a little bit more about Wayne Gretzky than he was worried about Tom Laidlaw. But uh, <laughs> he, uh, I actually think he gets a bunch of like actors and former players together to play like a little scrimmage every uh, every week or whatever in L.A. And uh, it's funny, real quick, he uh, he's got that show uh, Amazing Race uh, in Survivor. So they uh, now again, I'm very careful here, so this may not work out. But 
uh, he reached out to the NHL to try to get a couple of former NHL players to be on his TV show. So uh, fortunately, around New York, they know that I've kept myself in shape. So they reached out to me to see if I wanted to be on the show. And we found another former player, uh, Greg Adams, is living out in Phoenix now. And uh, so we put our names in to be on the Amazing Race. We'll see if that happens or not. So they, once they put our names in, they haven't got back to us since. I don't know if that's a good sign or a bad sign, but uh, we're there. So. <laughs> that sounds cool. So, uh, God, I hope that works out. It, it, that would be for 2017 or maybe 18? 18. 18, yeah. So they wow. would tape, I think they would tape it to start. It would start like the end of September and go like for six weeks until into November. Um, and again, I wasn't that familiar with the show. I, I, I watched it, but I went back and watched it over and you're traveling around the world and uh, it'd be fun to do it. And again, it may not even happen. Like I said, once, once they heard my name, they were probably like, well, who is that again? We you know if we remember here or not. Ah, uh, no, you put yourself down too far, man. No, you, you – I'm sure they know, but uh, as far as the Vegas team is concerned, uh, it seems to me my read of it was that the league uh, did a good job of making sure that the expansion team was able to... uh... No, that was mine. Okay, I'll I'll just start that over. It was Jerry Bruckheimer. Getting back to the Vegas expansion team, my read of it was, you know, the league did a good job of making sure that the Vegas team would have an opportunity to get off to a very good start in terms of who they allowed the Vegas team to pick from the existing NHL teams. Um, and their roster looks pretty darn good to me. And also, uh, it seems like the arena situation they have out there is pretty good. I mean, I, I don't know whether or not they're going to build a loyal fan base, Uh or what the corporate advertising market's going to be, especially once the Raiders get out there. And so you got an NFL team competing with an NHL team. But, Mr. Dealmaker, what's your read of the situation? Well, you know what? I really like what the league did because that's such a fresh market, right, that nobody really knows how it's going to go. They asked the ownership group there to go out and do a little bit of a ticket drive before they awarded them the franchise. Um, and I, can't, I don't know if the, the numbers, I'm, I'm sure the numbers were released, but obviously it came back with it satisfied the NHL enough that they knew that it, based on, you know, the response. And I, I think they were even required to get some deposits from the fans and everything to show that they were, you know, they were just saying, oh, yes, I'll buy tickets. There was actually some commitment to buy those tickets. So the league was satisfied that the, at least the, the season ticket base was there to be successful. Now, the, like you said, you, and you know that business far better than I do, but that corporate sponsorship portion of it, um, I don't know. I, I guess that's that, that's the uh, yet to be determined uh, number there. But uh, no, I like what they did. The advantage they had this year too is I think the plan initially, I believe, was to have two teams come in. Uh, they wanted to have a team out in the West and one of the team in the East. And a lot of the thought was that it was going to be Quebec City, a team going back there. Uh, and the belief was that because the Canadian dollar had dipped so much that that really hurt the chances of that happened. So they went with just the one team uh, in Vegas. Now the advantage with that is, like you said. Now one team instead of two got to draw from that pool of available players from around the league, so it gave them the opportunity to be much better. Now the general manager there is an old teammate of mine, George McPhee, who's done who did a fantastic job with the Washington Capitals and built them up to where they are now. Ultimately, now again he's moved on to to Vegas, but he was uh, he and the owner sat down and made a conscious decision to say, okay, now we can pick a team here now and hold on to these players, and we can be we'll, we'll be good right now. Or we can, you know, maybe get rid of some of those players and trade them for future assets, draft picks and young players. So they've still got a good team there. They've got a great goaltender, a very marketable young guy, and Mark Andre Fleury, who was with Pittsburgh for many years. 
real personable guy and a real quality goaltender. That's a big position to start with for a, an expansion team. They've got some other good players there. So they'll be a good team. I don't think they'll make the playoffs right away. But again, they really traded away some guys to get some assets. Like probably in, you know, you're looking three, four, five years down the road, these young kids start to develop. Like they're going to be a real quality team, which I think is fantastic for the league. So have a decent team to start with. They'll be exciting at first. The novelty is going to wear off a little bit after a couple of years. But as that happens, they've got those young kids coming in. Um, and, I, and I think they really be they have the chance to be a very good team in three to four years. And taking a break to say there's this place in Bali where you can play 18 holes next to an active volcano. There's this fountain in Miami that goes off with every home run. There's this subway line in New York that'll take you straight to both arenas. There's an exciting and thrilling world waiting, and no other card lets you experience it like the business platinum card from American Express. Backed by the service and security of American Express. And this podcast is brought to you by Away. Away offers first-class luggage at a coach price. Visit awaytravel.com slash Forbes and use promo code Forbes to receive $20 off a suitcase. That's awaytravel.com slash Forbes. Fantasy football season is here, and we've got the best fantasy football podcast anywhere because we've got the best fantasy football analyst in Evan Silva from rotoworld.com. Make sure you subscribe to the Fantasy Feast podcast so you can hear me, Ross Tucker, get Evan's rankings and draft strategies to give you the edge you need this year. That's the Fantasy Feast podcast, available on the Podcast One app or wherever podcasts are found. I never planned on losing my job, but we all know life can change in an instant. And losing my family's health insurance was an even tougher pill to swallow. So I looked into COBRA, but too pricey. Then I found out I could enroll through Covered California, where I was able to choose from good health insurance companies I've actually heard of. I even got help paying for it. There's a limited time to qualify after losing your insurance. So check out CoveredCA.com today. Covered California. It's more than just health care. It's life care. And, uh, Tommy, you know how the economics play out in hockey. The arena is so important. I, I think that new arena out there where the Vegas NHL team is going to play, AEG uh, built that, and um, I'm, I think they're going to run it. And, and yep. AEG is one of the, you know, they have the Staples Center. Um, I, I read some stat the other day from Polestar, which does the annual surveys of how busy – North America arenas are, and actually all arenas around the world, and stadiums as well. And I think AEG was running six of the top ten busiest arenas. Right. And that really helps with the economics because you got, you know, 41 home games, and then you've got this building that you've got to fill with other events like concerts and stuff like that. So uh, uh, that could really help the economics of that arena and the team out there, AEG's expertise. Oh, I agree totally, yes. I mean, a good friend, another old teammate, I guess I've been around a long time. Uh, <laughs> Luke Grobatai Luke is the uh, president of the Los Angeles Kings out there, obviously part of AEG. And, uh, you know, he's done, you know, sometimes the presidents, these former players come in as presidents, and it's less and less now, but in the past, these guys would come in and they'd be more figureheads, right? They'd be golfing with sponsors and everything. But uh, Luke has really, saw, he's done a fantastic job to really sink himself into the numbers and really be like that true president of a team. And uh, we kept, he just has nothing but great things to say about the way AEG's operated and, and you know, all those numbers, all the buildings around the world that they that they uh, that they work for. So I, 
Listen, I, I think Vegas is going to be a huge success. I, I think like a lot of people, when they first started talking about Vegas, you think, well, Vegas, because it never happened before. But you know, at some point, somebody's got to go in there, and I think the league has really done a, a good job of – doing as much research as they can to make sure that that's got a chance of being successful. And again, AEG is as good as anybody in the world at doing that job. And again, I just, I'm really high on the NHL. I just think the NHL has done, you know, so much like these CBAs have moved along. The revenue sharing has increased. The TV dollars have increased again, you know, not to the extent, you know, that the, you know, the NFLs of the world are, but I think they've just done so many more things to make it so that, a team like Vegas can really have a shot, uh, like uh, you know, from the owner's side. Listen, he he doesn't want to be writing checks every year to to make ends meet. He wants to know that this team can at least be you know at a break even position. Uh, and I think the league's done that. And again, the the companies like IEG that get involved help that even more. I think part of it is you know some of the things that have happened out there. You know, on the one hand, you have Nashville, which I thought it was great for the league that they went to the finals of the Stanley Cup. Uh, and even though that they lost to the Penguins, I thought that that was great for the franchise and for the movement of hockey in the South. You know, that was great. On the other hand, you got teams like the Arizona Coyotes, who just sold for $240 million, uh, you know, less than half of the expansion fee that the Vegas team paid. So you, you do see these mixed signals out there. You know, the Florida teams, the Tampa Bay Lightning seems to be doing well. Uh, and uh, Vinick, the former Fidelity guy who owns that team and runs it, has been doing a great job. On the other hand, in that same state, you know, the, the Florida Panthers are really struggling, losing yep. a lot of money. So, so you do sort of see these mixed, these mixed signals out there. Uh, in, in your opinion, was, was the Nashville, the season that Nashville had, um, in my opinion, that was very big. Do you, do you think I'm overblowing that uh, in terms no. of what it meant to the NHL? No, I don't think you're overblowing at all. I think it was huge for the NHL. It, it, I don't think that you know, they'd ever really floundered. I think you call it that. They were always a good team, and they're you know they were probably losing money most of the time. But you know, I don't think it was ever like a a, a bad like Phoenix has just hasn't been a good situation at all since they went into that new building, right? It's been it just has never worked. You know, the bankruptcy and all that stuff that had gone on. But I think with Nashville, um, you know, to take a a city like that or a state like that, you know, it's a country music city. And I mean, by the way, I love country music. I'd love to be playing right now and playing for the Nashville Predators. That'd be the ideal for me. Oh yeah, you and um, your cowboy hat. I no, remember that cowboy hat. I had, oh. Wasn't that everything. like your nickname, Cowboy Tom, yep. or something like? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. In fact, the Rangers. I'm getting off topic here, but the Rangers had a program in 1985 where they had me in the front of the program, and I was wearing a cowboy hat and I got a cowboy shirt and everything like that. And it's funny looking back at it. somebody sent it to me the other day, and I was like, "Oh God, please, you, you can't unsee that, right? You, you want to forget that you ever did that." <laughs> and then, then on top of that, on Instagram, somebody said, oh, "Tom, you got to do a remake of that." And I said, "Remake? I don't want to see the original of that." But finally, <laughs> I. I got talked into doing the remake, and people thought it was great. I was okay. I said, "All right, if you think it's great, that's fine." But I did a remake. Say, I've got the same hat and everything from from all those years ago, and did a remake. But uh, love that stuff. But uh, I, listen, I think that the Nashville thing was huge. I don't think you're overstating that at all. I remember when I first. Uh, so when I got traded from New York to Los Angeles, what in 1987, there was only 21 teams in the league, and really Los Angeles was the only southern city that had a team. Uh, the only place where you could sit out in your hot tub on, on New Year's Eve, you know, and and uh, have a cocktail, or whatever. But so, 
I, I remember seeing the difference. When I first got traded there, Wayne Gretzky wasn't there. And then Wayne Gretzky got traded with the year after I was there. And it was huge. The difference, it became like it became a real hockey city. Like going to the, the forum back then. Uh, again, we used to draw decent crowds. It wasn't like it was awful. But once Wayne got there and it became it became the place to be, the movie stars, uh, everybody. It was it was huge. You know, we'd go on the road and it'd be like being with a rock band. You know, now we're the Los Angeles Kings of Wayne Gretzky. So I saw that happen firsthand. And I saw it. And now you can see the difference years later of all these young U.S.-born players that are now playing in the NHL largely because of that move, Wayne moving from Edmonton to Los Angeles and it, the effect it had on hockey in, in a southern state. So I think the same, you know, listen, it's already, the league has already expanded, but I think the more things like Nashville happen for the league, the better it is. It just, it gets to a new market. All these kids that are drafted now uh, that are from St. Louis, that are from Los Angeles, that are from California, uh, Austin Matthews, first overall pick, you know, Toronto Maple Leafs is from Phoenix, Arizona. You know, he skated on the ice as a kid with Shane Doan and all those players that were Phoenix. So I think the more that good stuff happens for the league, like the Nashville uh, stuff that uh, makes the league even stronger. And you talk about Buzz. Uh, I remember, you know, watching those playoff games, they had a lot of country western stars yeah. going to those games and singing the national anthem. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, it was it was huge. I mean, it was their version of Hollywood, you know, right there. And uh, I I thought that was uh, really big for the league, uh, showing just how strong a following that franchise had. And apparently, I wasn't at the games, but people were, some of the the media members I talked to that were at the game, they said, like, even during uh, TV timeouts, they said the building was just electric. People are standing up. And they're ch- it's more like a soccer atmosphere, right, where they're chanting and uh, all that kind of stuff, which normally would not happen in hockey. Like and now, it, it seems you're talking to people. A lot, a lot of the other teams around the league, they want to try to manufacture that same kind of atmosphere, right? Get the fans into it even more. I don't know. If, I don't know if you're going to get the people at Madison Square Garden that entertain clients doing that as much, but uh, we'll see. You know, uh, another team, sort of not in a non-traditional NHL market, the uh, Carolina Hurricanes are awful, uh, also for sale. Uh, Peter Carmenos Jr., he's been trying to sell the team for a while now. What, what's your feeling about the uh, market that the Hurricanes play in? Well, you know, we've uh, tried to bring some buyers to that uh, to that team, and uh uh, a few things. The the initial response from people that don't do their homework right away is going to be that, oh, God, it, it's hockey. It's the Carolinas. It's just not going to work. Um, and again, on that, I go back to the league and what they've done in, these, in this process of going through these collective bargaining agreements and the way they've changed the revenue sharing, the way the TV dollars have increased. So it, it is – you can make it work there in Carolina. Uh, the team – I don't want to. I don't want to throw people under the bus. It had kind of slipped away a little bit as far as giving away big contracts where they really shouldn't be not taking care of their expenses enough. So they were losing more money than they should have been losing. I think they were, and I don't know the exact numbers. I think in the twenty million dollar range, they were losing probably you know four or five years ago. I believe now with the league's uh, increased revenue sharing, the increased TV dollars. Uh, the team now has been cleaned up. They've got rid of those big contracts. They've they've cleaned up their balance sheet a lot better. I think it's at the point now uh, where they're at that break-even uh, point. Now, uh, given that they, their salaries are low right now because they don't have a very good team. So that, the salaries are going to have to increase. Obviously, that's going to you know increase more of a burden on your bottom line. But that you know their, their season ticket base is at a very low place right now too. So you hope that that will go up. 
And what I like about Carolina is they've it's not an you're not guessing whether it could work there. They've shown that it can work. When they won their Stanley Cup, I think what, 10, 11 years ago, that place was booming. They, they, they had the barbecues going outside the arena all the time. It's a similar atmosphere to what happened in Nashville. So you know it can work. You know, they've cleaned things up. Um, you know, it'll be like you said, you know, it's been for sale for a while. So, like, I just think if somebody can really wrap their head around the fact that it's hockey in Carolina and really sink themselves into the numbers uh, and work out a deal with Mr. Carmenas, I, I think that could be a tremendous deal. I think you're buying an asset at the bottom right now, and I, and I say that respectfully uh, because they, they haven't won much, they haven't been in the playoffs. I, and when I say bottom, I mean that in a good way. You, I think you can get yourself – uh, a decent deal on a team, and now you know that you can you can go upward now. Uh, in you know, increase. They've got some good young players there. I think management that's running the team is tremendous, and I, I I think that's a great opportunity. Could you maybe draw a parallel to the Hurricanes today, to the way the Pittsburgh Penguins were around? I, I don't know. I guess it was it like '96? They were, I think they were headed in, or maybe they actually went for bankruptcy protection yep. and. I don't want to get into all the minutia, but that's what led to Mario Lemieux yep. being the owner of the team, right? Because they owed him all this money, and instead of uh, uh, the deferred payments, he started out with an equity po- yep. equity position in the team. And I guess, what do they have, three cups since he took over? Yep, and a brand, a brand new building through all that, too. You're right. I mean, uh, you know, I, I think that's, you know, again, large credit to Mario Lemieux and the people he brought in to, to save that franchise. And again, large credit to the National Hockey League coming to fix it up. They did the same. You know, I, I think it's, the only, as you said, the difference between Pittsburgh and Carolina is Carolina is not in a, a position where they're going to go bankrupt. But, you know, still, it's it's a team that's at, you know, it's at the bottom right now. They haven't made the playoffs. Uh, the revenues aren't, aren't as high. The season tickets base isn't that great right now. Um but again, I, I just think that they, you know, they've proven that they can get there with the past performance. You know, and you look at other, you know, Buffalo was in bankruptcy. I think Ottawa was in bankruptcy. You go way back to the LA Kings when I first retired back in the early nineties; they'd gone into bankruptcy. Um, so, you know, listen, the league has had their issues, uh, and and you mentioned some current ones. I mean, Florida, you know, you want that to be a lot stronger. Uh, but I, what I like about the league is that they've they've always seemed to, to work things things out. Like you look at the Phoenix situation there right now, and everybody I talk to would like to hear what your opinion says that they have exhausted every other opportunity. There is no other opportunities there for a new building, and they're not going to stay in the current building. So that tells you they're moving. Um, yeah, you know. my my thought on the, well, to be fair, uh, the Phoenix and uh, now Glendale, but the 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 Arizona Coyotes. In my opinion, they were doomed to fail from the beginning, or at least had long odds, because the way the whole deal was constructed when they first went out there, uh, where did they did they come from Winnipeg or Quebec yep. or Winnipeg? Yeah, you know, uh, it was never constructed as a hockey financial deal. It was constructed as a real estate deal. Yep. I mean, I still remember looking at the prospectus to get investors, and it was never based. They, they were never trying to get investors based on the fact that the coyotes would be profitable it was always they were always going to lose money and it was always going to be this mega real estate development around it you know that was going to make money you know not too different from uh when bruce ratner bought the nets and then want you know he used the nets to develop the atlantic yards in brooklyn and you know now the nets of course aren't bankrupt like the coyotes went but the nets have having their struggles and losing money and you know so my point being is that the, the, the Coyotes, were, the business model was never be about having a successful hockey team. So 
you know, I I do happen to think they've exhausted everything. I'm sure Commissioner Bettman would disagree with me. He seems uh, to be very, very committed to that city, to that market. Um, But who knows? You know, we're going to have an odd number of teams now with Vegas. uh, So... What does that do? Does that mean you're going to have one expansion team? People are talking about Seattle as a possibility, which to me would could make moving the Coyotes uh, challenging because right. you know what, what's the market going to be. Right. But I, I would agree with you. I, I would tend to think that uh, you know they need to go someplace better, in my opinion. So here's the question too. Then, so let's say that Phoenix does move. Um, and Seattle is a logical uh, location. And it, it, a group has gone in there now to refurbish that key arena, correct? And they hired someone. Right, that, right, they, you know? right. So, so they get right now they get five hundred million dollars to the league for Vegas. You would assume then Seattle, the, the, if they wanted an expansion team in Seattle, that's going to be the same number, right? But if uh, you now if you move Phoenix into Seattle, I know there's a transfer fee, but it's not going to be five hundred million dollars, right? So the league's going to be technically losing money on that deal if they let phoenix move into seattle correct and i think there as you pointing out there are so many moving pieces to what happens next so besides the pieces you just mentioned there's the other piece of well now the houston rockets of the nba are for sale uh leslie alexander the owner there came out publicly he's selling the team some people have said that uh something that could make the uh, purchase attractive to a buyer. In other words, where could they increase revenue in the future would be to bring an NHL team there. I think Houston's the fourth largest market in the country. I don't think that's going to happen. They've seemed to make it clear. They had minor league hockey in that arena for a while, and that sort of seems to be the extent they want it. They do a very good job of bringing in other events when there's no basketball there to that arena. But that's just one more piece. I, I think it's a game of, uh, you know, of burn poker in the sense that if Bettman, let's say, chooses the path of, I want to get an expansion team in Seattle that's going to pay $500 million, uh, be able to divvy that up and give it to the other owners in the league, and uh, says, I'm going to have Arizona, you know, See if have them make it out there or see what happens. What's to prevent them from going into bankruptcy? Again, they've already done the lease, you know, a couple times out there. It's still not working. You know, you have a situation where the team's losing a lot of money and isn't happy with the arena situation. And the city that owns the arena isn't happy with the arena situation. And taxpayers are subsidizing a hockey team that's losing money. So I think that's the worst of the two evils. And I think that if you move Arizona, listen, you get an expansion team in Seattle, maybe you move Arizona to Portland. uh, And and you you sort of build up this natural rivalry out there. And you still have Quebec open. And, you you know, look, you mentioned the NFL. You say the NHL obviously doesn't have the revenues, you know, has, what, like a third of the revenues of the NFL. But what makes it challenging is, the NFL is sharing equally over its half its revenue. You know, they, the, the, the visiting team gets like a third of the gate or, or 40% of the gate. That doesn't happen in the NHL. Yeah. You know, the home team keeps all the gate. The national TV deal in the NHL is small. Your local TV deal 
You know, if you're in a good market, is much bigger, much more money than you get from your national TV deal. So you need to have the successful local team. Yeah. You know, you can have a team in the NFL that goes 0-16 and is very profitable. Yep. You're not going to get that in, in almost all the NHL cities. So, you know, you know what? You're so well connected. Why don't you have the commissioner call me? I'll just lay all this out for him. <laughs> But here, here's what you have to do first, though. When you come up with your valuations of all 31 teams, you have to like bump it up by like another 10 to 25 percent of the numbers. Then he'll be happy, and then he'll be glad to be on your show. I'm his representative right now, and I've we can negotiate that. Okay, so just <laughs> yeah. fudge those numbers just a little bit. But uh, listen, I, I tell you what, the, the one thing with with Phoenix too that that is a shame when they first moved from Winnipeg to Phoenix, they actually played in downtown Scottsdale in the old. Uh, I mean, I think is that where the, the Suns were playing? I think at the time, right? Um, and you know, they did okay. Now that was there was the one end of the arena, so it was kind of like that obstructive view kind of thing. So it wasn't a great arena to play in. But you're right. Once they then moved to this other more real estate based deal, you're right. It just the theory was that re- that the the Arizona real estate market was taken off and all this building was going to move the, the, uh, all the population out to the building. Right. And then the market died out there and that never happened. So it's, it, I still think it's a shame. I still think it could work, but you understand why it's not working. And, uh, you know, and like, you know, I seem to agree that it seems like there's, there's no other opportunities out there right now. All right, Mr. Dealmaker, I'm going to, I got one more, uh, yes. one more Bring big it. one for you before I let you go and cut your Bring deals. It. So the Islanders, course have been playing at the Barclays Center and this seems to be another one of those situations that no one's really happy about the Islander fans are all ticked off because you know some of the sight lines aren't that good in the building although I did hear they moved the scoreboard it wasn't even centered I think at one point and I think it's centered now or something like that it made the sight lines better so they're not happy, the Islander fans. Although they can get there from the subway, from Long Island, it's it's not that bad. But the Islanders aren't that happy based on the revenues that they're getting from the building. I guess the uh, Brooklyn Nets or Mikhail Prokhorov, who owns the Nets and controls the building, I guess he's the happiest out of them all because he's got 41 dates booked. But... They're going to probably leave. They can get out of that uh, building in a in a year or two, I believe. W- you know where the, where are they going to end up? I mean, I'm reading reports. You know, by Belmont Park near the racetrack. There, they they may build an arena. At one point, they were talking about doing something near City Field in Queens, but logistically, that seems horrible because if you if their fan base is coming from Long Island, then they've got to take a a big right hand turn on the subway and go go way up there. Uh, Give me your crystal ball read on what's going to – how's that going to end up for the Islanders? My crystal ball is that they're going to go back, and this is totally my crystal ball. I have no other information on this one because, like you were saying, all, you hear all these other things pop up like at Belmont and then that died and then City Field and that died. So my guess is they're going to move back to the Coliseum, although it's, what, only, what, 11,000 seats or whatever it is right now? Is that yes, yeah, like yeah. That? They, they remodeled it. Right. It's, a, it's a lot smaller, right. and uh, although I think – does Prokhorov run that or Ratner? Did it, I think it's, is it yeah. Ratner? Or wasn't wasn't MSG involved in that at one point too? I, I heard a few names in there, but yeah. So now they go back there temporarily, and they build a new arena someplace in Long Island. But just but it was wasn't that the problem with uh, Charles Wong before that? He didn't want to just build an arena. He wanted to build that whole multi-billion-dollar complex, right? There was shopping and housing and all that different kind of stuff, and that's yep. what ultimately didn't work. Yeah, I still believe that. Why can't you just go back there? And, and build a building, 
in that same area, right? I mean, all around the Coliseum there, there's all that land. That's uh, that, my, how, I think you're right. I think, you know, look, I think there, there are two, you know, the main thing is build the arena and have the business plan for the hockey franchise based on the economics of hockey, not right. all this other real estate. You know, it gets so complicated and then, you know, you're out there as an owner also looking for all these subsidies, plus, you know, dealing with politics in Nassau oh. County. Uh. That's insane if you want to expand your driveway by two inches. <laughs> Forget about, you know, build build all this stuff. You know, it seems like every other week they're carting somebody, you know, before the courts to for an investigation. And, I mean, it's a mess. You know, keep it but, simple, right? But, Is that how you play defense? Keep it simple. Keep it simple. If you've if you got a 10-foot pass, make that 10-foot pass. Don't be trying to pass it up 40 feet, right. I'd be told. But, yeah, then they could get it work out there. They they have okay, a but, good But here's the question, though. At some point, so you got Madison Square Garden, the Prudential Center, Barclays Center, the old Coliseum fixed up. So part of the revenues you've got to get, right, is other dates, right, concerts and all that stuff. So if you build another building, can this area support another building when now you need to fill with 200 dates a year or whatever it is, and that building, like 200 more concerts or whatever? I think they can do it if it's out in Nassau County because if I'm in Nassau County or in Long Island and – you know, there's a concert at the arena. That's great. You know, that's, you know, a 20 minute drive, half yeah. hour drive, almost no matter where you are in Long Island, an hour maybe. I'm not going to be competing with the Prudential Center in Newark, yeah. you know, uh, or even really Madison Square Garden. But, you know, and you could see acts going to both of those arenas. But if you put it in Belmont Park, then you get into the point that you just made. Now I'm competing with the Barclays Center. I'm competing yeah. with, you know, Madison Square Garden. Uh, so, yeah, no, I, I think it's location. And, and there's nothing wrong with having a small building for a couple of years, you know, it, because it, if you have the strong fan base, you, can, you have a good local TV deal. And with the salary cap, you can do just fine, you know, provided yeah. you have a good team and, you know, you, you pop into the playoffs. Now, I, I would agree with you. I think that's that's the way to go. Now, Mike, here's the big question of the day, though, really. The really important, serious stuff that we need to get to. Like, how many TV shows are you actually on? <laughs> Seriously. Uh, you know, uh, on a regular basis, really just two. Just uh, Forbes Sports Money, which is on the Yes Network and – Fox networks, their regional networks, and FS1, and uh, Forbes on Fox, which is, of oh, okay. course, on the Fox News channel. Hey, buddy, when you hear about this uh, with Bruckheimer thing, if, if it uh, happens and you hear about it, can you promise to give me a shout? we got we got to uh, talk about that next. I don't know. I might forget who you are. Mike, <laughs> who? Tommy, thanks a lot for being on the All show, right. buddy. I, I look forward to talking to you again soon. Right, a lot of fun. Thanks, Mike. That's it for this episode of Forbes Sports Money. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with a comment or question, please email us at sportsmoney at podcastone.com. That's O-N-E dot com. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. It's peak season for asparagus, which pairs perfectly with a light and crisp rosé. Mini bottles of champagne and sparkling wines are perfect for adult Easter baskets. And they're really cute, too. My perfect brunch? Belgian waffles with extra whipped cream and a holiday pour of your sweetest rosé. 
Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is... Tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.